Today on the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast, is alternative energy even alternative anymore? Let's be honest, the energy industry is a rather large topic, and 20 minutes on this podcast isn't enough to hash out every detail. What we can get into is what renewable energy sounds like, what the market looks like, and what it all means for investors. There's a lot about this topic that baffles me and our producer, Barry. I mean, I know that my mom loves her Prius and dreams of powering our house with solar panels, but that's about it when it comes to me and the energy industry. I barely even knew what a power grid was before this. Yeah, but you're from the Midwest. It's not exactly known for its solar panel plants. You're being very kind. Unfortunately, Chicago does not boast year-round sunshine. I'm aware of that. There are a few wind farms around, though. So we sent Barry to Arizona to visit a solar power plant and one of the strangest destinations she's ever been, Biosphere 2. It's just awesome and amazing. It was impressive. Oh, it's been amazing. Yeah. No, I enjoy all this kind of science stuff. I wish I were one of the originals in here. Do you think he could handle it? He wouldn't. Absolutely. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> he, needs, he needs meat. <laughs> These are some of the people on tour at Biosphere 2. It's a massive science facility tucked away in the desert foothills of the Santa Catalina Mountains, just north of Tucson, Arizona. It started as a privately funded experiment in the early 90s. The experiment, or mission as they call it, meant locking eight people up in this three-acre glass dome for two years. There were living quarters, a kitchen, large agriculture space, and five separate areas mimicking five varying biome systems – desert, ocean, rainforest, marsh, and savanna, all within this structure. And the Biospherians' goal? To see if they could survive in this self-sustaining building and ultimately to test it out for future space colonization. The experiment was, could they grow their own food and could they produce their own oxygen? Because these windows are more airtight than the space shuttle, so nothing was coming in. They had to deal with the oxygen that was in here. At the time, people were sceptical as to whether or not this qualified as real science. There's still debate about whether or not this mission was successful. But what it did do is make a case, maybe not for whether or not we'd survive on another planet, but for the potential future of alternative energy. For two years, these people tried to live off only what they could grow and recycle. They were testing if their energy could truly be renewable. If sustainable energy was this out there, this on the fringe just 30 years ago, what does the future of sustainable energy look like today? And what will it cost us? I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Welcome back to the Morgan Stanley Ideas Podcast. While at Biosphere 2, our producer Barry met a few of the people who work there. My name is Katie Morgan. I am the Program Coordinator for Marine Science Education and Outreach out here at Biosphere 2. The eclectic past of this place really brings an interesting look at what this building is and why it's here. But we really are moving past that. For the Biosphere 2, moving past that image meant transitioning from mission-based space exploration research to academic-based environmental research. Nowadays, it's owned by the University of Arizona. The College of Science runs the facility. So we use this amazing facility to do drought research using our tropical rainforest. Uh, We have our flagship project, which is LEO, which Landscape Evolution Observatory. And they also do a lot of research on, that's right, sustainable energy. We're going to take you out to um, our agrivoltaic garden 
This is one of what will be three. And uh, that word that you just used, what does that mean? Sure, so agrivoltaics is kind of a mashup of voltaic solar and agriculture. And so what we're looking at is co-locating solar and agriculture kind of on the same footprint to see if we can stack functions and make both systems work more efficiently. This is Moses Thompson. He's working on this project with the University of Arizona and Biosphere 2. Agrivoltaics may sound like a term worthy of a space station or colony on Mars, but it actually just means working with agriculture and solar power together. It's their alternative energy research. They're currently experimenting with farming crops underneath solar panels. Take a look. It looks like we're growing cabbage, um, onions, garlic, Swiss chard. I think that might be it. Sounds like a good lunch. Yeah. They're testing out if this could extend the winter growing season. In the summertime, can that shade that they provide allow us to grow food using less water? But here's the thing about alternative energy. It's not alternative anymore. The scientists at Biosphere 2 are doing this research because it's applicable now. You know, I think the single most exciting uh, thing that's really happened is renewables have become cheap. That's Stephen Bird. He's a research analyst at Morgan Stanley. I cover uh, traditional regulated utilities as well as renewable energy companies. I wanted to talk to Stephen to zoom out from this one research facility and take a look at the industry at large. I've been in the industry for 20 years. I, I wasn't quite sure if we would ever see these technologies get cheap. And when I say cheap, for example, when I talk to, to friends, wind power in the middle of the U.S. has a cost that's about one-third the cost of a new natural gas-fired efficient power plant. That is a remarkable achievement that's really only occurred in the last uh, couple of years as wind technology's gotten better. Solar, it's kind of the same story in the lower 30 of the U.S., the sunniest portions of the U.S. Solar in much of that part of the United States is now the cheapest form of incremental generation. That is a really exciting development, and that's really uh, at the core what's driving the growth of these technologies, not a, as much a political or regulatory overlay. It's a, it's a pure market overlay. How would you describe the relationship between what you do and the renewable energy industry to somebody like, say, an attentive, smart fifth grader? Sure. So what we really try to do is understand the underlying technologies of renewable energy, you know, solar panels, wind turbines, et cetera, understand the business models behind the developers of those technologies, and then really understand how will these uh, technologies allow developers to make money? What are the competitive dynamics? I'm curious, are you interested in renewable energy because you are on a mission to curb climate change? No, really, we don't um, you know, put a, a political overlay on the work that we do. We're really looking at market winners and losers. Now, we have to be very mindful of politics, regulation, legislation, etc. But no, we're, our investment advice is not driven by a, you know, any personal goal. And what about the people who invest in green energy? I mean, are they all, do they all have a sense of the earth or are they all sort of green, left-leaning hippies? <laughs> Good question. You know, m most investors are really focused pure, purely on the economics, the, the business drivers, because that's ultimately really going to be the driver for the stock's performance. However, there's definitely a rapidly growing field of investors who do put an environmental overlay on the work that they do. And so they may shy away from companies with heavy exposure to coal and carbon 
and focus heavily on companies that are leading the way in terms of the growth in renewable energy. So that's definitely an overlay for a subset of our investors. But uh, even for those investors, they're certainly looking for companies that are well-positioned, where the stock represents a value, et cetera. It's, it's never, I think, a pure uh, political overlay. Can I ask you, I, I, do you, do you read The Economist? Oh, yes. Yep. And did you read that piece that they just published? It was their cover story a few weeks ago. I and I think it was Clean Energy's Dirty Secret. Yes. And I, I have, I will admit to you here and now that I did not understand every <laughs> word of it, but it didn't, it didn't sound good. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you, can you, can you explain a little bit what they were, what they were saying in that piece? Because I, well, I thought, well, this is interesting just as I'm soon to talk to you. Yeah, it was, it's fascinating and actually ties into uh, an insight note that we put out recently on energy storage. So here's the, the debate and the issue uh, that occurs as clean energy gets bigger. So solar and wind, as you know, are, the output is intermittent. You can't predict it. You know, when it's windy, wind power uh, is strong, but when it's not, obviously you're, you're not going to get a lot of wind power. Same with solar if it's, uh, if it's overcast. So that intermittency for the grid means that you've got to first have a very robust grid, and by that I mean a grid that can withstand those fluctuations and still provide very reliable power. You also need to be able to essentially fill in the gaps. So, for example... In California, on a, a cloudy day, solar output's going to fall. Something has to fill the void. The question is, what is that something? Now, one approach, and the economists laid this out, is for fossil technologies such as natural gas-fired power plants to come in and uh, provide that service. What we found, though, is another technology that's seen dramatic uh, price reductions and cost reductions is energy storage. And so we think storage is likely to supplant natural gas fired plants as the solution. So you can think about it this way. Solar power produces its maximum amount right in the middle of the day. But that's not when demand is at its highest. Demand is at its highest typically 5, 6, 7 p.m. when people come home from work. And solar power is very low at that point. Storage could essentially take the excess power produced in the middle of the day and then redistribute it when people come home. That would allow for a much more stable grid, a much more efficient grid. It would also supplant the need for natural gas fire power plants to crank up at 5 p.m. And that's what we're seeing. Storage uh, have really been coming down in cost uh, quite a bit. And that's exciting in the sense that that provides a really good solution to utilities who are somewhat concerned about grid stability, impacts, uh, usage of fossil fuel power plants. All that we think is going to be well addressed with energy storage. Hmm, that's interesting. So you're more optimistic than the economist. Definitely. <laughs> because what they seem to be, uh, part of their argument was that it was keeping everything inefficient, the fact that mm-hmm. there was this sort of gap between the two energies and, as you say, the intermittency of clean energy. Yes, that's that's right. And storage historically was very, very expensive and really huh. wasn't a, an economically viable solution. But uh, as an example, you know, the the magnitude of storage that's being manufactured now is so much greater because of electric vehicles. And with that magnitude of production have come dramatic cost reductions. And that's really, really, we're now into, I guess, what I think as the kill zone for utilities or the economic level, which storage has gotten so cheap that utilities are going to start to broadly deploy storage. And we're starting to see that in a number of states from California on the West Coast, New York on the East Coast, a whole lot of Uh, States and utilities are now starting to deploy storage on a large scale. Speaking of large scale, all this talk of renewable power generation made us want to get up close and personal with it. 
Just 40 miles southwest of Biosphere 2, in Avra Valley, there's this solar plant. It's 300 acres of rows and rows of panels. That faint creaking sound in the back? That is the sound of a solar panel. Bet you didn't expect solar panels to be quite that audible, did you? Unlike other types of solar panels, these ones move. They track the sun's position to maximize efficiency. Here's Barry at the solar plant. Are you able to tell like what time it is by looking at the panels? Sometimes, yes. <laughs> yes. I, I know right about uh, 12, 22, <laughs> the plant panels are completely flat. So it gives me kind of a, a judge on that one. <laughs> it's like, all right, lunchtime. <laughs> yep. Well, it's not lunchtime for me. That's, that's my prime time to uh, do a site inspection. Mm -hmm. I usually wait. The plant is maintained by that guy, Aaron Davis. He works by himself on the plant, but he doesn't get lonely. You can tell it's nice and serene, you know, you, nice and peaceful as you do your work day. You don't have a lot of people bothering you. And I don't think it's boring at all. I'm more of an outdoors person anyway, so getting out where it's quiet is actually probably my best place. <laughs> Aaron assumes that his own home is powered by the plant, but there's no way to tell for sure. The electricity that's generated on this plant is sent to the city's grid, where it has the potential to power 20,000 homes in Tucson. The, the number, ballpark number for a neighborhood, if you were to look on Google Maps, is a pretty substantial number of homes. If you come up with the number of 20,000 and try to count that in a grid pattern on Google, you're going to be counting for quite a while. So I would say it's a pretty substantial amount. <laughs> This solar plant field is run by NRG, a national power company. It's one of over 100 power plants they own and operate in the U.S. alone. But all this isn't to say everything's one big ray of sunshine for the industry. There are still plenty of obstacles. Let's get back to Stephen Bird for more details. From an investor's standpoint, yes, solar power is going to grow rapidly. But the, the thing that really concerns us about solar power is there are very few barriers to entry. Honestly, it's just... It's too easy to manufacture and it's too easy to develop. When it's that straightforward, returns tend to be terrible. And that is what we've seen. We've seen the manufacturers of solar panels just engaged in vicious price competition and the stocks have not done well. So we're shying away from an investor standpoint, even though you know, certainly if you're a fan of decarbonization and clean air, it's certainly great that solar power is growing. It's just that we don't see investors uh, making much money uh, in that field, whereas wind, it, it is more challenging. It takes a lot greater skill set, both to manufacture wind turbines and to uh, develop and install them. So uh, we do see growth there. Now, there are other risks to think about. Uh, both federal and state policy matters. Um, and we have the tax credits for wind and solar were uh, extended by a Republican Congress not too long ago. And um, we sense continued support for those tax credits, but we need to watch that. Uh, the great thing, I think, is those tax credits sunset later in the decade. And that is, uh, I think, ideal in the sense that by the time those credits sunset, these technologies will have gotten more and more efficient, and they won't need those subsidies anyway to be the cheapest form of generation. So that seems okay, but we continue to watch at the federal level to, to see if that might change. 
And what about talking of politics? What about the administration's or at least President Trump's avowed support for the coal industry? I mean, how it, it I'm not quite sure how that would play out. Maybe nobody is. But how would that affect clean energy? Yes, you know, what's interesting is the the driver of clean energy growth really is economics at this point. So, for example, we do believe it is fairly likely that the EPA clean power plan will either get overturned in court or essentially get delayed or somewhat changed by the EPA itself. And so we don't think that's going to be a driver. We think it's not going to be put in place. What's interesting is, except for a very few states, that really doesn't have an impact uh, because the decisions that the states are making are not driven right now by uh, carbon. They're driven by economics. Uh, so that gives us uh, greater confidence in the ability of clean energy to grow, even though you're absolutely right. There are ways in which environmental regulations may get either eliminated or uh, reduced in terms of their, their eff efficacy. That, in our view, broadly is not going to have much of an impact on the growth of clean energy. You know, one way we're looking at renewable energy is through Biosphere 2's history and how it sort of mirrors people's perspectives of renewable energy. And, you know, renewable energy sort of started off as this thing of sci-fi books and Back to the Future yes. and Doc <laughs> using garbage to power the DeLorean car in that movie. And, um, you know, billionaires testing human survivability on other planets at Biosphere 2. And so that's kind of what it looked like 30 years ago. And now it's much more attainable and, and real in, in, everyone, in people's lives. What do you think the future might look like of renewable energy even 30 years from now, say? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. I do remember you know, 20, 30 years ago, solar was a science experiment. It was very much of a niche idea. And now it's, it's, it's mainstream. And when we look into the future, we do see a lot of the work that's being done is actually on the grid itself, making the grid much more uh, intelligent and much more reactive. And the reason that has to be is the old system that our utilities have is centralized big power plants send power to customers. Now, customers often are producing their own power, which is great, but it also requires a much more resilient grid. And take Hawaii as a, an example. There's so much solar power in Hawaii that power flows back to the grid from customers. And it was never designed to be a two-way system. So Hawaii and, and many other utilities are really having to change their grid to allow for that kind of fluctuation, that kind of customer control over their own destiny. So robustness of the grid will be a big element of things. Security of the grid is certainly very important, making sure that um, it's uh, safe from cybersecurity uh, point of view. Uh, so I think what we'll see is a, just a much more resilient, uh, intelligent grid. We probably will see more uh, choice at the customer level in terms of their approach to power. Uh, I think that could especially be true for corporations who have large campuses. Many, many of those folks will um, make their own energy decisions at, uh, at the local level, and that's, that's fascinating. That could result in essentially microgrids within a larger grid. That, that's uh, an exciting development. Yeah, it sounds it. And it would obviously be so much more efficient and better for the environment, too, if these if these huge campuses were kind of doing their own thing. That's exactly right. And a lot of these uh, uh, companies are really focusing on sustainability, and uh, they're able to now really um, take control of their energy decisions because 
the technology's gotten so cheap. And uh, so, yes, I think that's absolutely a trend we'll see broadly in, uh, in corporate America and around the world. They're also feeling optimistic about the future of renewable energy back at Biosphere 2. Here's Katie Morgan again. I think it's really become something that people aren't scared of anymore. It's not this crazy thing that only the really rich or the really environmentally conscious can do. It's something that really everyone can benefit from. So it's a way that we can move forward together as a society to get a cleaner planet. Even if our future doesn't include turning banana peels into fuel for flying cars, it's still looking brighter, cleaner and cheaper. Thanks for listening to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the research discussed in this podcast and listen to previous episodes, you can check out morganstanley.com ideas. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Till next time.